We have a little bit of a series going here uh, between now and Christmas. Of course, on Christmas Day, we are gathering for worship, so I encourage you to come on out on Christmas Day at 10 a.m. We'll be here celebrating the birth of our Lord. Amen. Several people have asked, are we going to have church on Christmas? And the answer is yes, absolutely. It's Jesus' birthday, and if we don't show up for that, then uh, we're in big-time trouble with him, you know. No, of course not. But anyway, we're going to have a wonderful time on Christmas Day. But leading up to that, uh, we're doing a series of three messages that focus on the character of God, and specifically three character traits that we see in the Incarnation, in Christ coming near, in Jesus being born. Three character traits that that God puts on display and God demonstrates for us that that we want to draw out from uh, this story. And so last week we looked at the generosity of God. We looked at it from John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave. And that as God has been generous to us, we also should in turn be generous people. Amen. If our endeavor, if our goal is to be like God... To, to, to follow him, to follow Christ, then we too ought to be a generous people. And so last week we saw the generosity of God. And how many of you are thankful that God is generous? Amen. He is not a stingy God. Amen. Amen. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the faithfulness of God, that we serve a faithful God. And our text this morning is Luke chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 26 and uh, 26 through 38. And this is the great announcement of the angel Gabriel uh, to Mary that her life is about to change. And verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and he said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to understand what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will these things be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it this morning to press the truth of your faithfulness deep into our hearts. Lord, that you would press it in so deeply that every ounce, every shadow of doubt, every uh, place where there may be unbelief, Lord, lurking in our hearts, that that would be eradicated by the truth of your word. Lord, that you would help us as your people to trust you, to believe you, to look to you as our God, the faithful God, who is faithful to keep all of his promises. Lord, I pray that you would show us this morning that we would see clearly that you are faithful and that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we are looking at the faithfulness of God, and I have for us this morning seven, seven ways that in the uh, Christmas account, in the, the birth of Christ, that God's word proves to be true, where God has put his faithfulness on display. You see, God had made promises to his people. Over the millennia leading up to Christ, over the 4,000 years of human history, before Christ came, God had come and made promises. God had said the Messiah would be born here, the Messiah would be born this way, the Messiah would be this person, the Messiah would be that person. Made all of these promises, and in Christ they proved to be true. And so this morning, I I want to take a moment to to walk through seven that we see in the birth of Christ, seven ways that God kept his word, seven ways that God was faithful to do what he said that he would do. And then after we move through these, we're going to move through them quickly. I want to look at some implications and some applications for us in light of the fact that God is faithful. But first, I want to make the case that we serve a faithful God. And so we're not going to take time to look at every single one of these verses and turn to them. We're going to move through them quickly, but I do have the references on the screen, and you can uh, write them down, or when we get to number seven, if you want to pull your phone out and take a picture like we do in 2022, uh, so you can look up the verses later for you. I know they will be edifying to you. The first we see is... The, the very first, really, the, what's called the proto-evangelum, the, the first proclamation of the gospel. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, after uh, Eve had been deceived by the serpent, and Adam willfully disobeyed the word of God, that God made a promise that Christ, the Christ, would be the seed of the woman, that there would be a descendant who would come, a descendant who would come born of a woman who would one day crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see here a promise that is made that there will come one, one to be born, who will, though he will be wounded, though the, the serpent will strike at his heel, that this one who will come will de- deliver the decisive blow and crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan. 
And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, of this promise. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The Bible says that, that God is crushing Satan under the feet of Jesus. That through the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, that Satan has been defeated. We serve a defeated foe, amen. And so this is the first one, that the Christ would be the seed of the woman. The second one, and, and in fact, these next three have their fulfillment, all three of them, in our text this morning from Luke chapter 1. The second is that the Christ would be called the Son of God. We see that in Psalm chapter 2. We see that, in fact, all over the Old Testament. Of course, in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11, that the Christ would be called God's Son. And of course, we see this here in Luke chapter 1. Let's look at verse 35 again. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be, called, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Messiah, the Christ, He would be called the Son of God. And Jesus Christ is called, He is the Son of God. This promise that was made in the Old Testament, how would it be fulfilled? How, how would it be possible that, that he would be called the Son of God? But it comes into fruition, it comes into fulfillment, it comes into focus in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that the Christ would be called the Son of God. Number three is that the Christ would be born of a virgin. The Christ would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Then, of course, if we turn to our text here today, as the angel comes to Mary and says, You're going to have a son. And the Mar Mary says, how, how will this be? How will this be? Because I'm a virgin. The angel goes on to explain that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, that the Spirit of God will, will come upon you and, and you will produce in your womb by the power of the Holy Spirit a son. The virgin birth is a sign of who the Christ would be, of who the Messiah would be, of who the Deliverer would be, the Savior of the world. This is a sign that God had promised. Now, I don't know if... If you know this, but this is not the normal way that people are born. Virgins don't give birth. Virgins don't get pregnant. It takes two to tango. It takes two to make a baby. But not this baby. This baby was produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that there are those who struggle with this idea of the virgin birth. How can this be? For those of us who believe that God is the creator of the whole world, that, that, that he is the one who hung the stars, that he is the one who gives life, it's, it's no problem to, to understand how God could, could produce a baby in a, in a mother's womb with, without a man. That, that's not hard for us to, to believe. But there are those who struggle with this, and there are those who would say, this, this is impossible, this cannot happen. 
Therefore, uh, Jesus, his claims are not true. We cannot follow him, etc., etc. The whole Bible is false because virgins don't get pregnant. What I find interesting, and, and this is a quote from R.C. Sproul, he, he said this, he said, those who deny the virgin birth, they do preach a different kind of virgin birth. They preach the virgin birth of the whole universe. Those who deny the virgin birth typically believe that the whole universe sprang into being without being caused. They believe in this big bang. They believe, believe that nothing caused everything. If you can believe that the whole universe sprang forth out of nothing, that's the virgin birth of the whole universe. We're not talking about the virgin birth of the whole universe. We're talking about the virgin birth of the Son of God, which is easier to believe, that everything came from nothing or that God is the creator of everyone and everything. And that God caused his son to be born of a virgin. You see, you're going to believe in a virgin birth one way or the other. You're either going to believe what God's word says, what God predicted and that God was faithful to keep his word. Or you'll believe in the virgin birth of the whole universe, that the whole universe sprang out of nothing. Therefore, the whole universe and all of life is meaningless and purposeless. Merry Christmas to you. But no, in fact, God is the creator of everyone and everything. And that all of life has meaning and purpose because God is the creator. He had a design. He had a purpose. He had an intent for why he created everything and for why he created each individual human soul. Number four is that the Christ would be the descendant of David. The descendant of David, that he would come from the, the, the family of David. Of course, we've spent a great deal of time over the last several months working through Matthew chapter 1 through 4, and, and this claim is made repeatedly that David is uh, the, the, the predecessor, the, 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 the great, 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 all the way back grandfather of Jesus, the, the Christ. But here again, we see it again, not only in Matthew's gospel, but here in Luke's gospel as well. The promise is made. In verse 32, that he will be great, that he will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These promises were made to David that there would be a descendant of his who would sit on his throne and that God would establish this descendant, this king, this Messiah, this Savior's kingdom forever and that it would be an everlasting kingdom. And here we open to the pages, the very first pages of the New Testament and what do we see? That Jesus is that offspring of David. Jesus is that root out of Jesse, the offspring of David. Number five, that the Christ would be the offspring not only of David, but also of Abraham, and that he would be a blessing to the nations. We see this promise made in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As we turn to the the New Testament, we see that, 
that Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 says it this way. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And Paul says, who is Christ? Christ is the offspring of Abraham. Christ is the one through whom God is blessing the nations. The nations of the world are being brought into the family of God, being brought into the kingdom of God. As the gospel goes out, the nations are brought in. That God's plan, God's salvation is not only for for one family, but for all the families of the earth. Not only for one nation, but for all the nations of the earth. Not only for one tribe, but for all tribes, for all peoples, for all nations, for all languages, for all families. So that you and I, who, who by blood are, are born outside of the covenant that God made with Abraham, but through Christ, we have been grafted in, the Bible says, to this covenant that he made with Abraham. That through Christ, we are now part of Abraham's family. Through Christ, we now share in all of the blessings and all of the promises. So that the Bible says that in Christ, all of the promises are yes and amen. This is good news for us. Because we all come from, a, we're born into the world as a, through Adam's family, not the Adam's family, but Adam, Adam. We're born into sin. We're born with a sin nature. We're born with a bent towards rebellion against God. Tracing all the way back to Adam. Every person, the Bible says, has fallen short of the glory of God. We're born into a long line and lineage of sin and brokenness. But through faith in Christ, we are born again as a part of a new family, being brought into a new covenant, being filled with a new spirit, being given a new heart and new desires so that we can truly say that the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of the promises, all of the blessings now are extended to us who who by blood have no right, but by Jesus' blood, by his shed blood, we have been brought in to the covenant of promise. That through Christ, God today is blessing the nations. You and I are evidence of this this morning. If you have been blessed by Christ, it's proof that God's word is true and that he is faithful to keep his word. Number six, that the birthplace of Christ, where would it be? That it would be in Bethlehem. He, he identified the place where the Christ would be born. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. 
The, the, the place where the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior was to be born had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Micah. That he would not be born in Jerusalem, that he would not be born in a palace, but rather he would be born in this little tiny town way out in the country, Bethlehem. You know, you, 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 you think about all the, the little surrounding towns surrounding San Antonio. Way out there, out in obscurity, is where the Christ was to be born. But God had promised that this is where it would be so that even when the wise men come looking for him, they say, we saw his star. We've come to worship him who's born king of the Jews, but we don't know where to find him. And they go to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. That's a good place to go, the capital city. And they say, they dig out the scrolls, they dig out the text, they dig out the scriptures, and it says, well, it, it says here that if the Messiah is to be born, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So you're going to have to make the short trek over to Bethlehem if you want to go see if he's there. Of course, the wise men go and the wise men find him and they bow down and worship him and they bring him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The very place where God said the Christ was to be born. When you read the accounts of you know, Mary and Joseph, they weren't from Bethlehem. They were from Nazareth. They were a long ways away from Bethlehem. To move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, God had to move heaven and earth. Put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus to do a census that would cause Mary and Joseph, because Joseph was of the lineage of David, he had to travel back to his hometown for the census to be registered and to be taxed. How, what a wonderful thing that God can even accomplish his purposes through evil dictators who are taxing people. What a wonderful comfort that is to our hearts. I remind myself of that every April 15th, that God can even accomplish his purpose through this horrible thing that's happening here right now. Moved heaven and earth. You know, the Bible says that the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he wills. What a great comfort to our hearts. We see that on display here in, in moving Mary and Joseph from where they were in Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born where God had said the Christ would be born. And number seven, the, the final one today is from Daniel chapter nine. In Daniel chapter nine, he gives a promise of, of what's called his 70 weeks of a, of a timetable from when Christ would be born. These, these, this set of seven years, these 77 years sets from the time when, when the, the, the commandment was given for the Jews to return to, to rebuild the temple and their homeland, that that was going to start a clock. It was going to start a timetable. And from that time, the, the, the clock began to count down to when the Messiah would come. And I want you to know that Jesus came at the exact right time. From the exact right time that God said that Jesus would come, that the, the timetable started, that Jesus came and burst onto the scene according to God's predetermined timetable. So that Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, he puts it this the way, that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. 
That there was a, an appointed time that God had promised ahead of time, this is when it will happen, and then God accomplished his word at the fullness of that time. Romans 5, 6 puts it this way, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so that even Peter, when he preaches on the day of Pentecost, he will say that everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus accomplished, he did so according to the, quote, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, God had made a promise. He had said, when, when this event happens, when the proclamation goes out to, to, for the Jews to return from exile, to go back to the land, to rebuild the temple, that it's going to start a, a, a countdown clock in heaven. And when that countdown clock ends, the Messiah will come and perform his work. And Jesus came and performed the work that he came to do right on time. Right on time. These are seven evidences of in just the birth of Christ. Now, we could go much further as we go into the life of Christ... And we can look at evidence after evidence after evidence of God making a promise and God keeping his promise, of God making uh, his promise and God keeping his word. But just in the birth of Christ, we see these seven, these seven, not just predictions, but these seven promises of who the Christ would be, what he would do, and we see it all here in the birth of Christ. And so I want to shift now, having, having made the case that God is faithful that God performs his word, that he does what he says he's going to do. I want to give us some application for us this morning. What does all of this mean for us? What, how does this impact the way that, that I live my life right here, right now? Well, the first is simply this, that we can trust God. We can trust God. We can trust in God. Because God is faithful, he is worthy of our trust. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he will do it. And has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? No, God does what he says he's going to do. We can trust God. God is not like us. God doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. Every single one of us has made a promise that we haven't kept at one point or another. Every single one of us have had promises made to us that that person did not keep. But God is not like that. If God says it, he will do it. God keeps his promises. Amen. God is not like us. He is not a liar. He keeps his promises. So we can trust him. We can trust God. Secondly, because God is faithful and because we can trust him, secondly, we can trust his word. If, if we can trust God, we can trust his word. Amen? Amen? His word is trustworthy. Why? Because he is trustworthy. 
Proverbs 30, verse 5 says this, Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. And that he, God, is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Because God is reliable, his word is reliable. Because God is true, his word is true. Now we live in a world that that struggles with the, the veracity, with the truthfulness, with the trustworthiness of the word of God. This, of course, dates all the way back to some 6,000 plus years ago in the Garden of Eden when Satan came disguised as the serpent and spoke those fateful words to Eve that day, hath God said, hath God said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Ever since that day, when, when Eve was deceived and, and she believed the lie of Satan that, 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 that God's word is not true and that God's word is not trustworthy and, and that she should write and define her own word to live by for herself, that she should not live under God's word, but that she, she should divorce herself from living under God's rule and reign, the kingdom of God, and that she should establish her own autonomous kingdom for herself, not realizing that what she was really doing was bringing herself under the rule and the reign of Satan. Ever since that day, we have lived in the world of Genesis 3. We live in the world of hath God said, did God really say, living in a world that that questions the word of God, calls it into question, is it true, is it reliable, is it trustworthy, is it God's word? We live in that world of hath God said. But we need to not live in that world as as believers in Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to follow not after Adam and Eve, but we need to follow after Christ, who, who when himself was tempted in the same way. Remember in the wilderness after he was baptized and And the the heavenly voice from God the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That Jesus went out into the wilderness, that he was tempted by the devil, and then Satan came. And what did Satan say? If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What was he doing? He was saying the exact same thing that he said to Eve in the garden. Hath God said? Did God really say that you're his son? But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, we need to not live like the rest of the world does in Genesis chapter 3. We're called to live in Matthew chapter 4. It is written. To not not live in the world of hath God said, but to live in the world of it is written. It is written. God has spoken. You know, you see the bumper sticker around town. I've mentioned it several times before. The, the bumper sticker goes something like this. God's word said, says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And every time I see that, I want to go sharpie out the middle phrase. Because whether or not I believe it or not doesn't settle anything. 
God said it, that settles it, period. Now, you ought to believe it, and your life will go one way or another depending on whether or not you believe it, but, but the issue for it being settled is not contingent upon you and me. The Bible, in fact, says that God's word is settled in heaven, that not one, Jesus said, not one punctuation mark will pass away before heaven and earth pass away. That his word is established, that his word is settled. Therefore, we can trust his word. We need to not live in the world of hath God said. We must live in the world of it is written, that God has spoken, and that that settles the issue. So whatever issue it is, if God's word speaks to it, there's no debate. There's no discussion. The issue truly is, will we walk in faithfulness and obedience to the word of God and experience the blessing of God? Or will we bring ourselves outside of the blessing of God and live in disobedience under the curse? Which is it? God's word has, is settled. Where will we find ourselves? Jesus said in John 17, 17, that we who believe in Christ are to be sanctified in the truth, set apart in the truth. And then he goes on to say, praying to the Father, he says, your word is truth. Listen, we can trust God because he is faithful, and because we can trust God, we can trust his word. Every word of God proves true, and his word is the truth. This leads us to number three this morning, that we must then uproot the sin of unbelief in our lives. We must be actively uprooting, pulling out any place where unbelief is hiding in our lives. I want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. This will be the, the last uh, passage that we look at today. Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about this sin of unbelief. And the, the, the way it, it devastated the people of God in the Old Testament, the children of Israel. The children of Israel, the, the, the passage that it's referring to here, that the story it's, Hebrews 3 is talking about is when the children of Israel had been delivered out of Egypt, they had been set free by God, they had been led through the Red Sea, the, the Pharaoh's armies had been destroyed and crushed behind them. God had led them to Mount Sinai where he gave them his word. And then now he's leading them into the promised land. Leading them into what he had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are on the cusp of entering into the fulfillment of all God had promised. But of course we know the story where they sent in 12 spies. And 10 of the spies came back with an evil report. Two of the spies came back. And we know their names. They had a good report. What were their names? Joshua and Caleb. We name our sons Joshua. We name our, our sons Caleb. Not a single one of us could quote the other 10 people's names. They're in the book. Nobody knows them. Nobody names their kids after those, those guys. And those 10 people, hear me in this, those 10 people who had unbelief in their hearts, they, they turned the heart of an entire nation. Ten people who had unbelief. 
changed the whole heart of a nation in that moment. And their unbelief spread throughout the camp. That unbelief that was in them, that sin of unbelief, spread from one heart to the next to the next so that they said, we can't do this. We, we, we can't. I know God promised this, but we can't, and they're too strong, and we're not strong enough, and we're like grasshoppers compared to them, and they're going to squash us like bugs. Joshua and Caleb say, don't listen to them. God is the God who delivered us from Pharaoh. He's the one that led us through the Red Sea on dry ground. We are well able, if God is with us, who can stand against us. But the words of faith that day were overshadowed by the words of unbelief. And they decided, no, we can't. Let's go back to Egypt. And then that generation, God said, because of your unbelief, you will not enter into the promised land. And for 40 years, that generation wandered in the wilderness until that unbelieving generation passed away, until a new generation who believed the word of God and the promises of God were raised up who could go in and lay hold of what God had promised to give them. So that's the backstory on, on Hebrews 3. And then he takes this, the writer of Hebrew takes this story and applies it to believers today who are part of the new covenant. He says, verse 12, Hebrews 3, 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's, it's talking back to that, 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 that story where they hardened their hearts to not hear the good report. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those whom sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We must uproot the sin of unbelief in our hearts. We, we, we have to be very cautious. We have to be very careful that we do not let any lack of faith or unbelief, that we don't harbor that, that we don't nurse that in our hearts and in our lives. In Romans chapter 14, Paul puts it this way, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This means that all sin ultimately has its root in unbelief. All sin has its root in unbelief. It has its root in doubting God and doubting God's word. Does God's word really say this? Does this scripture really apply to me and to my life and to my circumstance? It manifests this way by saying things like this. I know God's word says blank. You fill in the blank. I know God's word says blank, but dot, dot, dot. I know God's word says I should love my neighbor. I'll make it real generic. Love my neighbor. 
But God, have you met my neighbor? Dot, dot, dot. Right? That's, that's unbelief. I know God's word says blank, but. But my situation doesn't apply. But my circumstances are outside of, of God's clear word. I'm a snowflake. I'm so special. Right? No, no. No. God's word applies to your situation, to your circumstance. Here's one that people often say, well, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. I know God. He, he, he's, there's an exception clause in here for me because God wants me to be happy. We need to pay careful attention to Jeremiah 17.9 that says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things. We can't trust our own hearts. One of the worst advice you'll ever hear in this life, which is printed and blazoned upon T-shirts all over our city, trust your heart, follow your heart. That is the worst idea. That, that should be, quote, and then attributed to Satan. That satanic ideology of following your heart. Why? Because the heart is, the Bible says, deceptive of all things, and it says desperately wicked. We can't follow our own hearts. We can't trust our own hearts. Our own hearts will lead us astray because sin is deceptive. Notice here in, in uh, verse 13, it says we need people exhorting us Calling to us, teaching us the word of God, which is like a sword, that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't, don't not a one of you think that you're beyond being deceived by sin. We need the word of God as that sword of the spirit in Hebrews chapter 4, the next chapter talks about, which divides what is true from what is false, which divides what is holy from what is profane, which divides what is righteous from what is sinful. We need the word of God to uproot the sin of unbelief in our hearts. And notice here that sin has a hardening effect on the heart. What this means is that it becomes easier and easier to sin the more you do it that the heart becomes harder and harder. Whereas the first time we might commit a certain sin, we sort of look up, look up and see if there's any lightning bolts that are going to come down and strike us. Well, I guess God didn't see that one. I, I, it was really dark, so maybe... No, no, the Bible says that God sees even in the dark. God sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. But the more we sin, the harder our heart becomes. We must apply the word of God. Unbelief is a sin. And it must be uprooted in our lives. And the, the, the way we do that is first we have to recognize that if I'm saying things like, I know God's word says this, but that... Here's, here's one that's used all the time. It's not a mortal sin. It's just a venial sin. I guess we live in San Antonio. You guys have heard that before. No, 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 no. All sin is rooted in unbelief. 
Here, unbelief is called evil. Here, unbelief keeps them from entering into what God has for them, into the promised land. There is a, there is a rest, there is a promised land awaiting all of us, and none of us will enter it with unbelief in our hearts. And we must, through the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, apply the gospel by recognizing it as sin. That means that there's actually hope for us. There's hope for us to be set free of unbelief because it is sin, because Jesus has broken the power of sin. If I will recognize unbelief as sin, that means I can repent of it. And I can take it to the foot of the cross. And I can receive forgiveness and healing and have the shed blood applied to it. But I have to recognize it for what it is. To apply the effects of the gospel to it, I must see it as sin. So I see it as sin. I repent of the sin of unbelief. I take it to the Lord. I take it to the cross. I I repent of it. And he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Number four, and finally. if If you have... Luke, still open. You can flip back there quickly. Luke chapter 1. This is this very last point for us this morning. That yes, we can trust God. Yes, we can trust his word. Number three, we must uproot the sin of unbelief in our lives. But hear what the angel tells Mary in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. Because God is faithful and God keeps his word, nothing is impossible with God. This is such good news for all of us. Nothing is impossible with God. And so as we look to his word and we look to his promises and we say, how in the world could this promise be fulfilled? I know, God, that your word says that you will work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, but I have no idea how you're going to work this situation for my good. But your word says it, so I believe it, because nothing is impossible with our God. How can I know that God will protect me in all of the ways in which I am vulnerable Because nothing will be impossible with God. And God has promised that we will even walk through the fire, yet we won't be burned. So I will trust God because nothing is impossible with God. How can I know that God will provide for me in these uncertain economic times? I don't know how he'll do it, but I know that his word says that he will. Where he says he will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And nothing will be impossible with our God. How can I have assurance that my sins are truly forgiven? Not based on my own efforts and merits, but only on the finished work and the shed blood of Christ. And as I look to him, I cling to the promise of his word that says that in Christ we are a new creation and that my sins are washed away. And how can I know that one day Christ will return and judge the quick and the dead and establish justice in the world? Because God's word says it, and I believe it, and it is settled in heaven. We need to live in the world, not of hath God said, but we need to live in the world of it is written. God has promised to provide for his people. 
God has promised to protect his people. God has promised to save his people. God has promised to deliver his people. God has promised to work all things together for our good. And we must hold to his promises and his word because every word of God proves true. If you believe that, say amen. 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 Invite you to stand with me this morning. Invite the ushers to come and prepare and the worship team as we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that in the incarnation, in the coming and the sending of your son Jesus, Lord, that we see all of these ways that you are faithful. The promises that you've made and that you've kept show us that you are a God who keeps his word. Help us, Lord, to continue to put our faith and our hope and our trust, not in ourselves, but in the God who keeps his word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.